New York galleries figured out, oh, we just have to go to them. There are 35 billionaires on an island that's less than a mile wide. If we're there, they're going to come. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So it's December, which for the art world means it is time to partay. Yes, that's right. Tis the season of Art Basel Miami Beach, the annual Bacchanalia on Biscayne Bay that unites the world's ultra-rich for a week of mega parties and big-ticket art shopping. At least, that's usually what happens. Last week, owing to the pandemic, the latest edition of Art Basel Miami Beach was entirely virtual, taking place not in the city's glamorous convention center, but in an app. That's not to say, however, that nothing happened down in Miami. We know this because Artnet News' own Nate Freeman, who you may recall as the author of our incredibly popular wet paint gossip column, braved a flight from New York to go and document what a Basel-less Miami Art Week looks like. He was, perhaps unsurprisingly, one of the very few people to make the trip. So what was it like? To find out, I'm very happy to have Nate on the show today. So thanks for coming back on The Art Angle, Nate. I am glad to be here, Andrew. This is always a pleasure. Now... Last week, you flew down from New York to Miami for a reporting trip, and I just want to let that sink in with the listener for a second, because at least to my pandemic-addled mind, that sounds like as if you you know, said you just came back from a trip to ancient Rome, or maybe you, you, know, you just kind of <laughs> you just ran yeah. down from the top of Mount Everest. I mean, like, what inspired you to go down to Miami in the midst of the second wave of the COVID pandemic? Like yourself and a number of listeners, I'm sure I was a little wary of traveling. It was my first time on an airplane since February. (laughs) After getting tested and taking all the precautions, I, you know, was able to get through what used to be commonplace, but is now a pretty terrifying ordeal of, of taking an airplane. And I think that it was a good decision for the last nine months, especially the last four or five. The reality is the art market is still operating in person. People are traveling. People are going to different places around the country or around the world. Even though you and me haven't been traveling, there is a way, way scaled back, but present international art market. I think it was important to let our readers at Artnet to know how things are happening or not happening in Miami and also in Palm Beach, because this is a chapter in the history of the art market that is going to be remembered in a, in a way, and it has to be recorded. Hmm. And so I think it was important to sort of just be here to chronicle what was happening uh, with an unflinching, objective viewpoint. You know, you and I have both been to Art Basel, Miami Beach more times than is probably healthy to admit. But huh. pretend I'm a uh, Amish farmer, curious to know about the ways of the art world. What is Miami usually like around this time of the year? Well, Art Basel, Miami Beach is far and away the most important art fair in the Americas. It is one of the biggest events in contemporary art anywhere in the world. And its opening day is the stage upon which billions of dollars of transactions happen in a matter of hours. It truly is a 
supernova of art market activity. And then that is just one fair. There are dozens of other fairs. There are dozens of world-class museums, private collections, galleries, pop-up shows, all of which are happening within the slim stretch of Miami Beach. It is truly a miasma of frenzied activity that is unparalleled in anything that I've ever covered in my life. <laughs> this year, you called it Zombie Art Basel. Why zombie? Well, it's sort of half living and half dead. It is the embodiment of what you know an art week should be, but there's actually nothing really happening. So Zombie Art Basel was my way of just describing this sort of placeholder of activities that would be happening during the normal Art Basel week when there is no Art Basel. What I didn't really anticipate was that walking down Collins Avenue would appear as post-apocalyptic as it did. It almost looked like it was the aftermath of the zombie apocalypse. And that was something that I just couldn't have anticipated simply because I had never seen that before. My mind's eye could never conjure a vision of Collins Avenue without throngs of people walking up and down. So to be faced with it just immediately when my sort of internal clock was anticipating this annual bacchanalia of activities and events was uh, a little jolting. It was a very out-of-body experience to walk up to the Delano Hotel, usually a veritable hive of art, fashion, nightlife, and to find it boarded up. Hmm. That was just something that I wasn't anticipating because I, I don't think that my body was conditioned to see it. And so that's why the term zombie art puzzle at first seemed, seemed even more apropos than I even anticipated. But what's funny is that after that initial shock, you know, I sort of found a completely new sort of rhythm of outdoor distanced safe events and happenings. There was a kind of identity to Miami Art Week this year that while pales in comparison to most art weeks that have been held over the past two decades, it had its own kind of energy. It's still kind of a little bit scary to imagine you down there because New York Governor Cuomo, you know, earlier closed schools in New York City when the positivity rate reached 3% before he kind of pretty quickly reversed himself and reopened them. Now he's saying that he's going to shut down indoor dining in New York if positivity rates reach 5%. In Miami-Dade County, the current 14-day rolling average positivity is about a whopping 8.5%, which is about double what it is in New York right now, and nearly a quarter of Florida's recent cases come from Miami-Dade County. So how safe do you feel down there? Well, I think from the outside looking in, you know, reading these statistics, listening to everyone, it can seem like a truly horrifying, dangerous place. And of course, this virus is something not to be taken lightly. But what is happening is people are taking every precaution and they're able to semi-function within this city in a way that you never think that the city is completely dead. Everyone is wearing masks at all times. Almost everything is outside. You are distanced, and there is just not that much person-to-person -person 
interaction. Sure, if you're an art dealer at Design Miami, you're interacting with a few dozen people per day, which if you've been isolating in your apartment in New York or upstate, that can seem mind-boggling. But the fair has gone to great lengths to ensure that every single person is temperature checked before they enter, is wearing a mask at all times, is sanitizing. At the same time, yes, it can seem a little scary, which is why I've been getting tested very frequently. I am personally taking all the precautions. It does let you at least report on these things without fear of contracting or spreading the virus. And while now it's not like the usual annual office Christmas party for the art world <laughs> that it usually is, you're not the only person who's gone down there this year. What other kinds of collectors, what other faces have you seen who have traveled down there for the same reason you did? Relatively very, very few people who have traveled down here. There are not that many people who came down for a few days and then went back up to New York. It's art dealers who have established pop-up locations that are here through December, if not into January, and do not plan on going back and forth between New York and Miami. Most people came down here in late November with the anticipation of staying for a long time because it is frequent travel that spreads the disease even more. Whereas if you go down safely and then stay in one place for a long time, you know, in theory, that's safer. And so what you had down here was a number of art dealers who came to participate either in Design Miami, that's maybe like two dozen, if that, probably less because there are a lot of local galleries, and then maybe half a dozen galleries that opened pop-ups in the design district. Hmm. So we're talking a few dozen people, if that. And they are here because there are people who are already in Miami, who are in Palm Beach, who have been down here for months. And that's the audience. The audience is not people who are traveling in, but it's the local art infrastructure that's already mm -hmm. in place that really is the attraction of what's going on. Me coming down from New York, I am very much an outlier. There is so much to see in Miami right now, the Rubel collection, the Dela Cruz collection, the Margulies collection, the Bass Museum, but that's all just local institutions. So the art ecosystem was basically already in place here. Hmm. And the people who have traveled are just a handful of dealers who think that they can end this really, really horrible year for their businesses on a high note because, mm -hmm. you know, the backbone of this industry is in-person art sales. And they think that there are local collectors who have been missing that experience and want to check out what they've been missing not going to New York over these last nine months. The collectors here can't fly into New York necessarily because they're older, but if Levy Gorby opens a pop-up in the design district, mm -hmm. they can you know, drive and see Calders and Pat Steers and, and Warhols that they've been missing out in New York. So speaking of the design district, I mean, usually the action revolves around the Miami Beach Convention Center, which recently underwent a $620 million renovation to make it an even snazzier locale for the Art Basel Fair. But this year it is instead an emergency overflow COVID clinic. And instead the action is in the design district. So who is the collector Craig Robbins and what role did he play in bringing galleries down to the design district? 
Well, Craig Robbins has been a instrumental figure in that art real estate nexus for decades now. He first, you know, worked developing Wynwood as a sort of art community in Miami. And then when developing the design district in the late 90s, early 2000s, similarly, he wanted to have a strong art component alongside the fashion boutiques that would be occupying most of the area in order to turn it into, you know, a sort of Miami version of Soho, which is what his partner, Tony Goldman, was famous for. He, he developed the Soho sort of fashion identity in the late 80s, early 90s. Hmm. So while he's been doing that forever, he's never faced a situation like this. Like most real estate barons around the world, Craig Robinson has found himself with more vacant spaces than normal. So he has a lot of vacant storefronts in the design district, and he offered them at very affordable rates to galleries. And, and that was really enticing to a lot of dealers who have had long-term connections with Craig Robbins, who have a deep connection to the city of Miami and wanted to be a part of what was happening this week and into December hmm. uh, and into January. And so that's why you see Mitchell Ennis Nash taking a space. That's why you see Jeffrey Deitch taking a space. That's why you see the Bushwick Alley Ramkin taking a space. That's why you see Levy Gorbian's Line 94 taking a space. They all had the opportunity to move into these ready-made gallery spaces that were made for brands like Marnie or Jeffrey. Just sort of like turn them into galleries really easily. In your article you wrote on this, you describe how Levy Gorby used the changing rooms in the former Marnie that it's occupying as a showcase for Calder sculptures, which I thought was pretty, pretty awesome. But, you know, so Art Basel in Miami is sometimes called the Black Friday of the art world because it is when dealers are able to make that last big push of the year and push themselves out of the red into the black. And this year, most collectors engaged with Art Basel Miami Beach through the online viewing room platform, which is the virtual version of the fair that it's been doing ever since it had to close the uh, Art Basel Hong Kong edition in March. And it seems like that is working pretty okay, at least with, with a lot of galleries selling and even some galleries like David Swerner selling a $2.5 million Ruth Osawa sculpture. But these galleries that you're talking about took the risk of going down there to do the in-person sale. Is there any indication that their way of doing it is smarter than the OVRs? There's no ideal way to do this when this disease is still ravaging our country. That's the reality of it. The online viewing room was a success for a lot of galleries, from what I could tell. The reality is, if the biggest price for a work at an art fair was $2.5 million, that puts it among the sort of lower end of art fairs, you know, mm -hmm. at most art puzzle Miami beaches, you'll have galleries selling works for 20, $30 million. 2.5 is like, that's what's to be expected. That shouldn't be the highest price of the entire fair. Hmm. So the reality is, I think that many collectors are still waiting for this COVID era to kind of, and entirely before they make purchases at that level. I think that on a certain level, having a physical gallery is way easier to sell works because people can come in off the street 
and then look at something and then make it a snap judgment to buy it in person. Does that mean that people are selling things for millions of dollars out of these pop-ups in Miami? Not necessarily, but I think they are making more surreptitious sales to people who weren't previously their clients mm -hmm. than they would be if they were just doing the online viewing room. Because it's not only about you know selling the works that you bring to your booth or you put in the online viewing room or whatever. It's really about those connections that you make with the dealers and the kinds of trades you're able to you know finagle within your network. You know, a lot of dealers have told me that the connections that they're making with collectors now are the ones that are going to really stand the test of time going forward because they saw dealers making the effort to come to them in this crazy time. So we've talked a little bit about the art market. Let's talk about the art. What were uh, some of the highlights during the week? The Dela Cruz collection, the Rubel collection, the Margulies collection, the Baths is one of the more respected museums in the South. All of these places were firing on all, all cylinders. They did not hold anything back. At the same time, there's like cool programs that the city was doing. There was this no vacancy project where 10 artists were given stipends to create artworks that would be installed in hotels. You know, there's a lot to see there. I got a, a tour of the convention center where there was an Ebony Patterson painting that was acquired by the city for the convention center that was installed. And it was just breathtaking to take in. The galleries that I mentioned all had really, really amazing programs. And I just got you know word from the founder of Rampkin Gallery. He's changing up his program to have some works of art from one of the booths in Design Miami installed in his gallery just hmm. because he just wanted to do that. So it's this ecosystem that is both fully in place and established in the case of these big museums and collections, but also one that's dynamic and changing by the day if you're someone with a pop-up gallery or a space with the ability to program like the ICA. Okay. We talked about the art. What were the week's famous parties like? There were not really any parties. Uh, I went to one event that Libby Mugrabi did that was the closest thing to a party. It was an experience. I understand where she's coming from, and I don't regret attending for the sake of journalism. Um, well, let, let's, let's stop there for a second, because I, I, I want to hear about this notorious party. <laughs> but who is Libby Mugrabi? Libby Mugrabi is the ex-wife of David Mugrabi, who's one of the world's biggest collectors. Him and his brother and father have amassed hundreds of Warhols, but also hundreds of you know, artists like you know, Tom Westerman, George Kondo, Kay Sharp. Also pretty visible collectors about town. And their divorce was a real tabloid event. It was actually pretty cinematic. So in the recent New York Times article, Libby is quoted saying, quote, now I settled a divorce and I have a lot of money and I can do whatever I want with it. And I think this party was something she wanted to do with her money. So what, what did she do? She rented out a restaurant in the Faena Hotel called Pow and hosted a large dinner that was both inside and outside, open bar and food. And she climbed on this Damien Hirst sculpture at one point that was a little alarming. There, there, were, there were novelty trucker hats that were emblazoned with slogans of her choosing. It was just the sort of thing that you 
would normally see in Miami. It wasn't like a crazy party for Miami. It wouldn't have been like the highlight of the week in any other Miami Art Week or Basel Week. It was just literally the only party that happened. Was this at all like any of the classic Miami parties where you have Paris Hilton DJing and celebrities canoodling in, in the bank? No, cats? there were no celebrities. Maybe some <laughs> art collectors that I didn't know. The only celebrity I saw was Cuba Gooding Jr. at Joe's Stone Crab. Which is, I mean, a, a great sighting, not only for the very talented actor, but also for the incredibly great restaurant that I'm very jealous that you got to go to. <laughs> yes. Joe's has a really great outdoor setup. It is as delicious as ever. So you did the Miami thing this year. You, you even went to a party, but you didn't stop there. Afterwards, you went on to Palm Beach. So why Palm Beach? Well, Palm Beach is this haven for billionaires that has long been a place for art collectors to have their work in 50 to $100 billion houses, but it's never been a real gallery hub until just a few months ago when Pace announced they were going to open a space there in the Royal Poinciana Plaza, which is this fancy outdoor mall. And many other galleries followed suit. Paula Cooper opened up. Damon Moffin opened up. There's going to be an outpost of White Cube and Aquavella open their second ever gallery after the <laughs> classic Upper East Side space. So in a very, very short amount of time, what used to be a place where collectors would buy in New York and then ship all of their work down in Palm Beach. They would never buy in Palm Beach. Uh, you know, they would consider that ghost when they could just go up to New York. All of a sudden, they're not going up to New York anymore. A lot of them are elderly. They don't want to travel. You know, there's only been a few hundred positive tests in the town of Palm Beach since March. It's a very insular community, a very tight-knit community. And I, I think that, that for the first time ever, because there isn't this culture of buying art in New York, shipping it down to Palm Beach, New York galleries figured out, oh, we just have to go to them. There are 35 billionaires on an island that's less than a mile wide. If we're there, they're going to come. And so I went to Palm Beach to see if that was true. Uh -huh. Turns out they're doing a lot of business. And when I was there on Saturday, there were collectors just you know rolling around. There were people on Worth Avenue, which is the main drag in Palm Beach. That's where Liam Moffin and Paula Cooper are. And there was you know a real hive of activity that wasn't actually that present in Miami. Uh, which was a little jarring because, you know, again, middle of the pandemic. But a lot of people are betting on it for the long term because you have people like Ken Griffin, who's one of the world's biggest collectors. His company, Citadel, moved their entire operations down to Palm Beach in the beginning of the pandemic. Blackstone moved down all of their operations as well. There's rumors, but it's turning out to be true, actually, that Goldman Sachs is moving its asset management division down to somewhere in Palm Beach County. Wow, from Manhattan? Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, it's one division, but they're attracted by the tax haven status that you're afforded in Florida. But also, they've realized that you just don't need to be in Manhattan right now. You can be where it's warmer. You can be by the ocean where a lot of people already have second homes anyway. Mm -hmm. But what dealers were telling me was that they have people coming in who just relocated to Palm Beach. They just moved their kids into schools here. 
They're in their 40s. You know, they're just starting collecting. They have a lot of expendable income and they want to buy work. So organically, you're going to get a collector base that is not really leaving Palm Beach. And they're not really buying art online because they're new to this whole thing. They don't really trust what it means to buy art online. So they're going to be buying from galleries in Palm Beach. And that has never happened before. Jason Rubel tried to open a gallery on Worth Street in the 90s. It failed because everyone just thought that buying in Palm Beach was ghost. That's not what you did. You bought in New York. Now the pandemic has rendered that impossible. Therefore, Palm Beach needs galleries. So we recently did a podcast about a new survey that suggested New York City is the number one best place in the whole world for an art business to set up shop because more than half of the world's top collectors live there. But it's not the only place where they live because they're rich and they've got a lot of homes. So a while ago, you reported on this phenomenon of dealers opening up shop in the Hamptons to capture their vacationing wealth there. Is this the same thing? It does feel very similar because you have the same kinds of galleries. You do have a critical mass of collectors. I think that the difference is people in the Hamptons were coming back to the city here and there. There's there a decent amount of moving back and forth. Whereas people who are coming down to Palm Beach, they're staying until March at the very least. It's a bigger commitment that these collectors are, are making when they leave their other homes in New York or the Hamptons and come down to Palm Beach. And I think that dealers think that a more sustained relationship with these collectors who are down here, you know, without moving around to anywhere else, uh, can lead to long-term relationships and sales. So as everyone knows, the most famous denizen of Palm Beach is Donald Trump, whose Mar-a-Lago is based there and who reportedly is heading down to his club for the week before Christmas and may actually uh, stay there for the remaining weeks of his entire presidency. Does his presence kind of loom over the city's art scene in any way? Does he kind of like color the town? Basically, the town itself has been just tweaked even more so toward his vision. When Donald Trump arrived, he was an outsider in Palm Beach. This was the most exclusive, not just real estate, but sort of the clubbiest city on earth. He couldn't get into the Bath and Tennis Club, you know, even though he was Donald Trump. So that's why he bought the land that is now Mar-a-Lago. Someone described it yesterday as like a spite store. I don't know if you watch Kirby Enthusiasm, but like he bought the neighboring resort to the Bath and Tennis Club just to spite them. And so in Palm Beach, you have sort of, you know, people of two minds. I think there are a lot of people who, even if they are Republicans, even if they support low taxes, they still think of Donald Trump as this just boorish outsider who doesn't belong in Palm Beach, whose Mar-a-Lago is just the epitome of everything that's wrong with Palm Beach, that's the new Palm Beach, and that people like him should stay out. At the same time, just the number of people who are members of Palm Beach who have moved down there because of Trump, who have doubled down on their support for him and are now currently in Palm Beach, makes it a Trumpier town, inevitably. The guy, Christopher Ruddy, who's the founder of Newsmax, is based in Palm Beach, and he's one of 
Trump's closest allies, and his media operation is based out of Palm Beach. Hmm. And you kind of got the sense that even if you were at a place like Santa Rose, or even if you were walking on Worth Avenue, that these people, some of them at least, if they weren't being allowed into the Bath and Tennis Club, then they'd be Newsmax watchers. In a typical Miami Basel year, you'd walk around a corner and you'd see two or three anti-Trump artworks. Is, is that something that you're encountering in Palm Beach or is that kind of not really the vibe? I didn't see anything like that. Gavlak Gallery that was founded by Sarah Gavlak in 2005 has long championed women, female artists, and just like you know, progressive artists and is really conscientiously pushing back against the Trumpian ethos in general. And while I can't say that there were any explicit anti-Trump artworks in at Gavlak or any other gallery, you got the sense that they were sort of maybe commenting on his presence obliquely. But I didn't see any actual anti-Trump works or any protesters or anything like that. So James Murdoch, scion of the uh, the Fox News Corporation Murdoch family, just sealed the deal on his months-long negotiation to buy 49% of the MCH group, which is the parent company of Art Basel, which means that he is going to bring his like tech-savvy you know, kind of uh, strategy to the art fair. And he's investing about $80 million. And next year, Art Basel Miami Beach is slated to come back to the convention center from December 3rd to December 6th. And... If you could like peer into your own, you know, art market crystal ball, what do you think that's going to look like? Is it going to be entirely in person again, or is there going to be some split? Are we going to be looking at some kind of hybrid? Is it going to be balanced one way or the other? What does Art Basel 2021 Miami Beach look like to you? It's definitely going to be some kind of a split. I think that the city of Miami will want to use the convention center in some way. I think that they'll probably be able to have some kind of a quote-unquote art fair in there with a lot less galleries, a lot less people. But the reality is, you know, we can't really have enormous crowded events when there's any presence of the coronavirus in that area. And there's just no way that we're going to eradicate everything a year from now. And so you're going to have People who still aren't, aren't ready to travel, you're going to have people who can't come because of limited attendance uh, necessities. And so there'll be a lot of sort of online programming in addition to some things certainly happening in person in Miami. It's just going to be scaled back a lot. I think by that time, by December, we'll sort of have a few months under our belts of living with COVID in a vaccinated era, you know, Freeze is is really optimistic about having a semi-fair thing in July in Los Angeles, but it's going to look completely different from its fairs in the past hmm. because there's not going to be a central venue. It's going to be a number of decentralized venues. I think because of that approach that they're taking and the fact that it's in July, I think that they'll be successful in doing that. If that holds, then you think, well, five months after that, we'll have some more progress with the vaccine. We'll get cases down. And then you can probably have a very scaled back version of an art fair in Miami Beach in December. Again, who knows? That might be wildly off the mark. 
<laughs> I might be way too optimistic or, you know, maybe I'm, I'm too pessimistic, but uh, I think to the best of my ability, that's what I think it would look like. Fingers crossed the next Art Basel edition is going to come in Hong Kong on May 21st. And I hope that both of us will be able to actually go there and see what the what the art world is like, to see how it revives from hibernation. And personally, I would go there just for the food. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I, I miss all the little side benefits of, of doing this whole art fair travel thing. But um, thanks very much for coming on the show, Nate. Of course, yeah. I look forward to our quarantine before attending Art Basel Hong Kong. <laughs> It'll definitely be... Um, a diet in preparation. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>